morning, everybody. My name is Justice. I am an alcoholic. <clears throat> I really appreciate being asked to do this, and I really hate it all at the same time. Um, I've sat in this room for a couple of years, and I've watched other people come up and tell their story, and I have silently sat and thought, man, I really want to do that. And uh, then I've turned that into, why the hell don't they ask me? And then I got asked, and it was, oh, shit. <laughs> so, um, people have come up to me over the past couple of weeks and, and said things, a, a wide array of things, I guess, um, from you're going to do great to I have high expectations. So, for those of you who have high expectations, let me go ahead and apologize now. Um, I'm just your average, everyday drunk and drug addict. Nothing special. I'm not one of those circuit speakers that was an Air Force pilot and, you know, had something really cool in my life that I destroyed. What I had was a pretty average life for a person who was raised by two hippies and uh, alcohol and drugs has been a part of my life since the day I was born. That stuff was in my house um, on a constant basis ever since I can remember. Um, I do remember being a kid and Back in the 70s, they had those really cool Western couches, you know, that, and they had a uh, console in the middle that would flip over and there was a tray. Well, that tray was full of pot. It was always full of pot. And I apologize, you know, I know that this is going against tradition and I'm going to try and relate my story to Alcoholics Anonymous as best I can, but I'm an IV drug abuser. That was my drug of choice. Alcohol has always led me back to that, and that's why I sit in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so I, I was raised with uh, a stigma involved in the family life. I was told that if I went to school and I, I told teachers or anybody else that mommy and daddy did those things, that of course mommy and daddy would be taken away. So that's a, that's a huge burden to bear when you're such a young child. Um, my mom and dad divorced when I was relatively young. I don't know exactly how old I was. Um, and for those of you who are wondering, wondering how I got my name, my name is Justice. It's spelled J-U-S-T-U-S, -S, and I've been told many different stories. It depends on who you ask in the family on how I got that name. The one I like the best, kind of a sad story, is uh, when my mom was pregnant and about to give birth, my dad had gone off on a binge and wasn't there. So when I was born, it was just us. It was just me and my mom. And um, <clears throat> I'm a rather emotional guy, so if I cry, I'm sorry. Um, I respect my mother very much. Um, she went through, you know, the majority of her young life as a single mother, and um, my dad wasn't in the picture too often. When he was, of course, it was just to cause trouble. Um, I bounced back and forth throughout my adolescent uh, life. I, I learned some really neat tricks at a young age, you know, how to play one side against the other to get exactly what I wanted. Um, I'm a master manipulator in every sense of the word. I've been that way my whole life. Uh, and I still to this day manipulate situations to get what I want when I want it. Um, the only difference between today and a little over two years ago is I realize I'm doing it now and sometimes I have to back off from that stance. Um, <clears throat> my dad has been sober um, going on 20 years now. Um, I would say that that was the best 20 years of my life, but he got sober and decided to be a jet setter, so now he lives in different parts of the world, and I don't see him very often. Um, but I will, I will tell you that I am very proud of the fact that you know he went from a bottom-of-the-barrel 
heroin addicted alcoholic to being a halfway decent man the best halfway decent man he can be I guess um, let's see I don't really have any cool stories from when I was a kid you know it was just life as I knew it and I was taught when I came into these rooms that my perception was my reality so my perception of my life may be actually really different than the way it really happened you know um, what I remember is a lot of turmoil um, a lot of not really knowing where I was going to be how long I was going to be there um, I didn't have the most stable life coming up and uh, things didn't really start to turn around for me as far as stability was concerned until my dad got sober um, then I was able to bounce into his house and, and I would learn these life lessons that I didn't even realize I was learning you know I say things in here like I'm gonna hit my head on that brick wall until I realize it hurts that came from my dad you know, um, there are other life lessons that I've learned from my mother that, of course, I don't want to admit that I've learned. But, <clears throat> you know, I, I have children of my own now, and I hear things coming out of my mouth that used to come out of their mouths, and I absolutely hate that. Um, my whole life, I wanted to be accepted, but I wanted to be different all at the same time. And I don't know if that makes sense to anybody else. I wanted to, I wanted to cut my own path in life, but I wanted to be accepted while I was doing it. I wanted to fit in with every crowd that I ever came in contact with, and uh, I learned how to do that at a relatively young age, too. You put me in a room full of rednecks, and I can be a redneck. You put me in a room full of African Americans, and I can be the whitest African American in that room. You know, um, <clears throat> That's just what I do. That's the only way that I could identify with people on the outside. You know, um, It gets thrown around a lot, but I did go through life comparing my insides to everybody else's outside, and I never measured up. No matter what I tried, I was never good enough. I never felt good enough about myself. And, uh, and I, I constantly set myself up to fail. You know, um, I've got a lot of young people in my life today that I try and express my own lifestyle and the cycles that I've gone through in life. You know, and I think that that's exactly what this has been. It's been a series of cycles. I'm very good at um, dreaming really big coming up with the next best thing that's going to make you proud of me, not me proud of me. And uh, doing everything it takes to start that cycle and then I get to a certain point and I figure, fuck it, I, I'm never going to be any good at this and I just quit. Um, that's been my life story. you know. And I don't know exactly when that started and I don't think it's really ended, to tell you the truth. you know, I've gotten a little bit better at realizing some things about myself along the way. But I still have my bad days just like everybody else. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if I can fill up all the time that I need to fill up with my life. Um, so when I was 13 years old, I took my first drug. It was with this girl named Anna. And she was back in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s was when the goth thing first really got big. So she wore the black lipstick and the black eyeshadow. And she was just a really trashy girl and I liked that about her. And um, <clears throat> I can remember we, we smoked some pot off of a Coke can and I thought I was in heaven, you know. Um, of course, pot was really easy to get because it was always in the house. I could steal it and it was no big deal. My mom wasn't really a drinker. On the weekends that I was with my dad was when I was exposed to alcohol. Um, I wish that I could tell you I had some cool story about the first time I got drunk. I think it was just the average story. I drank way too much. I threw up. I felt like shit the next day. I wanted to do it again, you know. Um, so, 
Um, I was exposed to a lot of different things in my life. Um, I've come home at different periods in my life and found my dad nodding out on heroin. I've come home and um, been told that my mom was a lesbian, you know, out of the blue. And uh, she went through uh, um, a phase in her life, I guess, for lack of a better term. Seven years she was in a committed relationship with a woman. And uh, that happened to be at the time in my life where I probably needed a man around the most. I was going through puberty. Um, uh, there was the stigma of having a, a gay parent in the house. Um, so I didn't make friends during that seven-year stretch, you know, because, of course, I didn't want anyone to get to know me that well. And then that would make me look bad because my mom was gay. Um, funny thing is she's not gay anymore I don't know how that works but um, <clears throat> so way to go mom um, you know uh, if I had to wrap up my life in as little time as possible I was confused I was always at dis-ease with myself and with other people um, I never felt like I really knew what I wanted out of life. I never felt like I knew how to accomplish a goal. And uh, I would love to stand up here and tell you that it was everybody else's fault but mine. But the truth of the matter is it's not. It's not my dad's fault that I'm a drug addict. It's not my mother's fault that I'm a drug addict. That's just the way I chose to cope with life. That's the way that made me feel most comfortable in a group setting. It's the way that I could feel comfortable with myself when I was all alone. And it was the way that I felt accepted by that really trashy crowd that I thought was really cool, you know. Um, I have had, uh, I had my first child when I was 18 years old. And uh, it was with a girl that I absolutely hated. <laughs> and um, I don't recommend that to anybody. Um, <clears throat> I moved up here. I... I had some trouble in high school, of course, um, along with, well, let, let me backtrack. I moved after my eighth grade year from a place where I was relatively settled and had some friends into a whole new town. And uh, that summer between eighth and ninth grade, my mom came up with the brilliant idea that I should join the football team because then I would make friends. So I did that and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed football. Um, it was probably one of the brief times in my life that I applied myself to school because grades were important so that I could play. Um, I enjoyed the camaraderie. I, am, I enjoyed all of the extracurricular activity after school. All of those things, I thrived off of that. Um, unfortunately, football season ends and uh, the dedication to grades and everything else just wasn't there afterwards. So I was academically ineligible to play the next year. Um, which was the catalyst in high school for me just to get my first case of the fuckets. And I'm sorry for my language. I'm a dirty guy and uh, I have a dirty mouth. Um, but I, that was the first time that I said, screw this. You know, it's just not worth it. It's not working out for me. And um, I started hanging out with you guys. And um, <laughs> I was going to say the bad crowd, but you know, I just realized I'm in a room full of the bad crowd. Um <laughs> So I started hanging out with everybody that uh, had the same, the similar attitude, you know, um, looked at life the same way that I looked at life. You know, it was always everybody else's fault that I wasn't achieving. It was my mom's fault that I couldn't play football. Not mine, of course, because I had, you know, gone to study hall. 
didn't mean I passed any classes. Um, so I was on a downhill spiral, um, relatively young, and uh, some things turned around and I went to an alternative school down in Florida. Probably the best time of my life. It was like junkies paradise. Um, we went to school for three hours a day. We had a 15-minute smoke break in between class. You know, my math teacher smoked pot and was a hippie, and uh, it was like a little slice of heaven as far as I was concerned. Um, the only thing that really happened for me there was it was work at your own pace type of school, and I thrived on that as well because, you know, I could be 20 years old and still not graduate high school, I guess, if I had wanted to. Um, and then things things went terribly wrong in the relationship that my mom was in. And the only place that we had left to go was Georgia. So we moved up here when I was 17 years old. My aunt, who knows absolutely nothing about anything, um, said, I found this really great alternative school, just like the one you went to in Florida. Well, I got up here and it was just a regular high school with a bunch of retards in it. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, me being one of them, let me make sure that I point that out. And I was in English class and I met a girl named Jessica. Once again, she wore the black lipstick, the black eyeshadow, the plaid skirts. She was really trashy and I loved her. And um, <clears throat> we didn't get along so well. I think, you know, we had some choice words from one another every once in a while. And then we had sex for the first time and of course that meant we were in love. And um, I've had many, many relationships like that where I have uh, substituted a physical relationship for an emotional relationship, and they never seem to work out. You know, um, the only thing I've ever had in common with most of the people that I've been with in my life is the fact that we both enjoyed the physical aspect of being in a relationship, but I didn't want the responsibility. I didn't want anything else that was involved in that. Um, she told me she was pregnant. I stuck around for about eight months, and then I took off. Uh, you know just another cycle in life. It's what I do. I get scared and I run. Um, I spent the first nine years of my oldest son's life running from that responsibility at all costs. Um, I joined the Army when I was uh, 20 years old. I stayed there long enough to go AWOL and get kicked out. And um, that was another one of those bright ideas in life. You know, It was going to make everybody in my, in my immediate family very proud of me. You know, I come from a family full of veterans, so of course that just seemed like the natural step and uh, just wasn't for me, you know, um, at that point in my life. I took off from there. I moved back up here. In the meantime, I had gotten another girl pregnant. We were in a committed relationship just because she was pregnant. And um, we came up here because this is, this is my safe haven. This is where mom lives. I always come back home. You know, mom has always been a great enabler and bailed me out every time emotionally. Um, I'm not a convict. I've never been to jail or anything like that. <clears throat> but I have taxed my family emotionally, I'm sure, beyond anything that I can repair in this lifetime. Um, we moved up here. I had my second son, Zachary. Some of you guys have met him. He runs around here every once in a while. Um, and I for the first time in my life, realized what true love was. Um, this will be one of those times that I cry, I'm sure. Um, didn't necessarily care for his mother at all, um, but the day that he was born and they pulled him out, I fell so deeply in love with another human being 
that I didn't think that that was possible. I didn't think that um, that I was capable of that kind of emotion towards somebody else. Um, now, of course, I still neglected my oldest son for quite a few years after that, but um, as far as Zachary was concerned, that was it. I realized what my purpose in life was that day. You know, um, Unfortunately, I have a sick mind and I think about things a little bit differently than most people do. So instead of just my son, he became my best friend. He became everything to me. Um, I went through a dry period there where I wasn't using anything at all. Um, and I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying really hard not to focus on all the war stories. I've got, I've got the bar brawl stories and I've got the, you know, almost OD and on cocaine and all that stuff. I don't think that that's the important message here. Um, the message that I would like to convey to everybody in the room, and there's quite a few of you, um, <coughs> is uh, that I can recover, and I know that today. That all of the things that I did to myself emotionally were much worse than anything I did to myself physically, and um, and today I have a solution for that emotional pain. So, <coughs> my son was born, I split up with his mother, and... Um, I decided I was going to be a firefighter. Another one of those great ideas, you know. Um, I'm always looking for that fantastic thing that's going to make somebody say, wow. <laughs> so uh, I went and applied at the fire department. I got accepted as a volunteer. I filled out all the paperwork. Everything was great. I had been living in uh, Cumming, Georgia for quite a few years, right on the uh, Cherokee Forsyth County line. And um, was asked to watch my aunt and uncle's house up in L.J., for a week while they went on a cruise. I didn't think anything of it. That was fine. I got a phone call, and this is back in the, the day of answering machines. And um, on the answering machine was the fire chief of Cherokee County. And he said, hey, all your paperwork's great, except for this warrant that's out for your arrest. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so I freaked out, and I called him, and I, you know, I wanted to know what the warrant was for. Well, it was a <clears throat> the warrant was taken out for abandonment on a minor child. And uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, it doesn't mean that I dropped my kid off at the grocery store and didn't go back. It meant that I took off when my first son was still in the womb and wasn't around for the first nine years. Um, so I called my mother, of course, went and turned myself in on the warrant, had to go to court and face this girl for the first time in a very long time. Um, Everything seemed to work out. It was, you know, it was fine. I had this little hotshot attorney that was willing to be paid by the week because, of course, I've never had any money. And um, <clears throat> all charges were dropped pending mediation. So we went to mediation, and I had to sit down across the table from this lady. And for the first time in my life, I had to sit there quietly and listen to somebody tell me exactly what they thought of me and my actions. Um, I didn't, at the time, didn't think that that was a very powerful thing. Looking back on it now, I realized just how empowering that must have been for her and uh, how necessary it was for me to hear, even though I didn't want to. Um, mediation happened. We came up with an agreement for child support, and um, I paid my child support on time for the first couple of years just out of fear of going back to jail. Because for those of you who have been handcuffed in front of your mother, you realize how uncomfortable a situation that can be. And... Um, I did that, but at the same time, I lost myself in that as well. Um, I allowed this woman to treat me any way that she felt was necessary, talk to me in a way that I wouldn't let most people talk to me, 
um, because of the guilt that I carried for the whole situation. And um, that went on for quite a while, six, seven years. And um, I just recently got custody of my oldest son. That happened in sobriety. Um, I met... (coughs) This, I, mean, I know I'm going kind of fast and the timeline's not really there. I'm trying to get to sobriety rather quickly. I met my wife um, working two jobs, living in my mom's house with my youngest son at the time, trying to pay child support, trying to do the responsible thing, and uh, was introduced to crystal meth. And um, for those of you, this is the way I'll relate it to everybody in here who got that sensation when they took their first drink. When I snorted my first line of crystal meth, I absolutely fell in love like the day I fell in love with my, when my son was born. Um, it gave me everything I was ever looking for. It gave me energy. It gave me the ability to be comfortable around you. It gave me the ability to have sex like an animal. Um, <coughs> all of those things that I thought were really important. And... Uh, I met my wife. Once again, it was a relationship that was not unlike most of the others. We didn't particularly care for one another in the very beginning. And um, I'll take the blame for that because I'm a pretty hard guy to get to know. Um, I've spent the majority of my life putting up false walls that most people could see through. But, uh, you know, I stand here today with a shaved head, fully tattooed, because at one point in time that was the only way that I could keep you from wanting to get to know me. You know, uh, I'm not a tough guy. I never have been a tough guy. You know, um, now if I had told you my story about a year ago, I would have said I'm not a tough guy, but I'll still kick your ass if I have to. That's not necessarily true today. Um, so I, I met my wife. We got into a really dysfunctional relationship for the first few years that we were together. And uh, I'm trying really hard to only share my story. Um, there was a time where we both enjoyed doing some of the same extracurricular things. I'll just put it that way. Um, And then my wife grew up. And one day she realized that she didn't like the way that felt anymore. She didn't like the way it felt the next day. And uh, she wanted better for herself in life. And she wanted the good job and she wanted the family and things like that. And uh, so she quit. She quit doing those things. I don't still to this day don't fully understand how you do that, but I guess it's not for me to understand. Um, So she quit, and of course that meant that I was supposed to quit. And uh, I was just incapable of doing that. Um, I bring that up because she's sitting here, and I love when I get an opportunity to tell my story in front of a group of people, and and especially in front of her. I shouldn't have looked at her. That makes me want to tear up. Because um, she's probably one of the most wonderful things that one of the most wonderful things that's ever happened to me. She was one of the strongest people I've ever met in my life because there came a point where she finally said, "Enough's enough. You got to choose." And um, had I not been presented with that choice in life, I may not have been here today. Um, she stuck with me through a lot of things. I've stolen tax returns. I've gotten us evicted from apartments. Um, I've wrecked cars. I've you know, I've done all of the materialistic things that you can do to destroy somebody's life, and that's outside of the emotional pain that I've caused in my own house. You know, um, 
to give you an idea of what's happened for me in sobriety before I came in. And I didn't, I didn't find this out until I had about six months sober. But she was just biding her time until I found a job so that she could pack her shit and leave. You know, um, and I admire her for that. I admire her for that on a couple different levels. The fact that she finally came up with the strength to make that decision in life and the fact that she loved my son when I couldn't love him enough to stick around and make sure that he didn't end up under a bridge with me. Um, I've been sober coming up on three years now. Um, We got married in June. So God has truly um, worked some miracles in my life because we've gone from excuse me we've gone from (coughs) emotional turmoil and not really wanting to be around one another to a relationship where I can honestly stand up here today and tell you that I'm married to my best friend And if I don't get anything else out of sobriety between now and the time that I die, that in itself has been worth this journey. Um, I have a relationship with both of my children now. I have the respect and trust of most people that um, have met me in sobriety. Some people that I've known from the past don't necessarily trust me still. Um, But... Every day that I'm here, it's uh, it's something new. A lot of the times it's something painful, but it's something new. Um, now to sobriety. <clears throat> My sobriety date is April 14, 2007. I went to... Uh, I, let me give you the backstory. One of my best friends before I got sober, of course, was my dope dealer. And um, I don't use the word friend lightly most of the time Um, but I look back on the relationship now and I realize just how dysfunctional that was you know he would take all my money and then give me money for school supplies and things like that and that to me was a true friend because of course he had my family you know he was thinking of my family what I realized today was you know he just kept me around (laughs) he could give me 50 bucks to go buy school supplies because he knew that the following week I was going to swing through with a couple hundred for dope and uh, that's just the sickness uh, of most of my relationships. He got locked up um, for possession and of course that just threw a monkey wrench into my plans because now I had to find a different source for my relief. Um, And I did, just like any good alcoholic and junkie does, I found that other source. The, uh, The funny thing to me is the dope dealer that I had right before I got sober, I couldn't pick him out in a crowd. It was one of those things that you see in a movie. He sat at a gambling machine at a gas station <laughs> with two empty stools, and you put your money on one and picked your dope up on the other. And uh, I don't even know if his real name is Steve. you know. Um, and that's really not important. But what had happened was um, I had befriended some kids that had moved down here from Michigan. And uh, I sit in these rooms sometimes, and I, I use the word thief. And um, and I am a thief, but I'm not a thief in the sense of I would break in your house and steal what you had. I would befriend you, and I would make you feel as though I was doing you a favor while I took everything you had. 
and I'd smile at you and then I'd help you look for it, whatever the case may be. Um, I had befriended these kids that had moved down here. They were 19 years old. One of them's mother had died and he was down here on his inheritance. And uh, I helped him run through $30,000 in about a month and a half, two months, and um, had learned how to use a needle. Um, that was a very big taboo in the, the crowd that I ran in, you know, um, to be an IV drug abuser. And my friend slash dope dealer got locked up and got out of jail. And it was 95 degrees, you know, like it gets on a very hot Georgia day. And he showed up at my house and I had a hoodie on because I was embarrassed of the track marks and everything else that were involved. I lied my way out of that situation because, of course, he wanted to know if I was a junkie, you know. Um, and uh, I lied myself out of that situation. And I went and scored some more dope. Now, let me relate this to alcohol real quick because I am in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have tried to give up crystal meth numerous times. And I have, I have always given it up by substituting it for smoking pot or drinking beer. See, beer was never my thing, really, because when I hit 21, I realized that I was acting just like my father had acted my whole adolescent life, and I didn't want to be that person. Now, I didn't realize that I could substitute one for the other, nor did I realize that's what I was doing. But um, So I would try and give up crystal meth. I would smoke pot, and I would drink beer. And eventually the thought would come into my mind, well, I can control this. Because I was, I'm not your typical alcoholic. I could drink one or two beers a week, you know. Um, but what, the, what, when I say that it leads me back to my drug of choice, it's because after that second or third week where I have only had one or two beers, I convince myself that I can become a social drug abuser again. And when I say that out loud, it sounds so ironic because I don't think there is such a thing. Um, so I had tried to give up. Um, all of the things that I was doing on a, on a pretty regular basis. What I had found towards the end was that I was uh, locking myself in my son's bathroom because he had one of those with the double door. I would lock myself in my son's bathroom and I would do what I do and I would lose seven or eight hours. And uh, I would come to when he was knocking on the door the next morning ready for school. And, um, you know, it was just one of those like shocking being brought back to reality type of events and um, and I would feel so guilty that I had done that once again you know and then my wife would wake up and she'd be getting ready for work of course I was unemployed and uh, I'd feel guilty that she was the one that was bringing the money into the house so the thought to want to quit was always there I always wondered why I was doing what I was doing I would actually be on my way to go score some more dope or pick up more needles and think to myself, I just don't want to do this. Today's the day. I'm not going to do this anymore. And about an hour later, I would be doing it. And uh, I would sit there and I would wonder to myself while I was doing it, why can't I stop? Why can't I quit doing this? The miraculous thing that happened for me was, once again, that drug dealer friend of mine called me on a Friday night at about 11 o'clock and said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm getting ready for bed. <laughs> I probably hadn't been asleep for four or five days. Um, <clears throat> I said, I'm getting ready for bed. He said, well, do you mind if I swing by? And I thought, oh, geez, 
If I say no, he's going to know something's up. So I said, yeah, come on by. So he came by and he brought a movie. And my wife and he and I sat around and we watched this movie. So my wife went to bed like a normal responsible person does. And he and I were left in the living room alone. And um, God graced me with the ability to open up to another human being that night like I had never opened up to anybody in my life. At the time, he was going to another 12-step fellowship, and I didn't even know it. And uh, he just asked me some questions. How are things going, you know? Um, And I opened my mouth, and everything just kind of fell out. You know, I'm doing this, and I can't quit. I don't understand why I can't stop. Um, I want to stop, and I just can't. So uh, he said, well, I'll take you to a meeting if you want me to. He said, there's one tomorrow. It's a great meeting. I thought, yeah, I'll go. That's fine. And um, I had I had already worked up a syringe of the last of my dope and had it hidden in the house. And he said, well, are you going to sleep tonight? I said, probably not. He said, well, let's go burn off some energy somewhere. I said, okay, but i got to go to the bathroom. That was always my excuse. And I went into the bathroom, and at that point in my life, I had um, collapsed a couple of veins in my arm, so I was no longer able to hit there. And I used to root around in my feet trying to hit. And um, I went into the bathroom, and my thought was, I'm going to push this dope, and I'm going to die. And the only saving grace to that is, he's going to find me dead, my son's not. And that was my biggest fear, was that I was going to die in my son's bathroom, and he was going to find me that way. Um, I think about that statement today and I realize um, how selfish that was of me because even though he would have found me, my son still would have been without a father. Um, But that was perfectly okay with me that day. So uh, this is another one of those God stories. So I'm rooting around in my foot. I finally hit and I've got enough dope there to kill me. And I know this. It's more than I've ever pulled in my life and I'm ready to go. And uh, I like to I like to call myself a proficient junkie, like I didn't miss very often, you know. Um, and uh, I had hit and started to push, and God jerked my hand. I'm absolutely convinced of that today. And I jammed the needle into the top of my foot, and I missed three quarters of the dope in my syringe. Um, I didn't realize that that was God at work when that happened. I just thought, oh, shit, I just wasted the last of my dope. And um, <clears throat> I hobbled out into the living room and by that time my friend had passed out on the couch and I sat there and I watched him sleep until the sun came up. And the next day my wife got up and of course this was going to be another opportunity for me to prove how much I loved my wife and I said, guess what? Scott's going to take me to a meeting tonight. I'm going to get help. And uh, she was over it by that time. You know what I mean? Yeah, good for you. And um, <clears throat> But what had happened the night before when I was sitting there by myself and I was watching my friend sleep was that I had come to the conclusion that I was really going to give this a go. That I was going to try this no matter what it took, no matter what somebody told me, that I was going to come into this and I was going to jump into it with both feet. So I took the next necessary step in my travels and I called my mother and I admitted to everything. And uh, my mom's gone through this with a couple different husbands. And she said, well, I knew you had a problem, but I also knew that there wasn't anything I could tell you that was going to make it any different. Um, Of course, on the other end of the phone, I was 
crying and, and uh, apologizing for being a junkie and letting her down and everything else. And I was told the most powerful thing she said to me was, you owe me no apologies at all. She said, go forward from here and get better. I went to a meeting, and it was a speaker meeting. And uh, I meant to wear a blazer today because I've always wanted to do that. The guy who stood up was this really well-dressed man. And he just looked like he had it all together. He had this pinstripe blazer on. You know, he looked like uh, like a Don Johnson type of thing, you know, like out of Miami Vice. And uh, I sat in this meeting, and I heard, I heard three things. I heard this man say that he had always felt like he was on the outside looking in, and that he had shot up in a bathroom in Buckhead and died. And those were, those were the two things that really stuck out. And then he said, <clears throat> for those of you who are brand new, there is a solution. And uh, I can remember, I cried a lot of that meeting, and I heard a lot of white noise. Um, and I got up. And after the meeting, <laughs> what I didn't mention earlier was that I've, I've been in the rooms of AA for a very long time with my dad getting sober. So when the meeting was over and he was standing and he was talking to someone who's a very close friend of mine now and uh, had his back turned and I was going to walk up and in my mind, this is exactly how it was going to go. I was going to walk up. I was going to tap him on the shoulder. I was going to say, hey, my name's Justice. I got a problem with drugs. I just can't seem to quit. You know, I know all the catchphrases. And I just need a little bit of help. You know, is there anything you can do for me? And what happened was I walked up and I tapped him on the shoulder. And when he turned around and made eye contact with me, I went, oh, help. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and he did. He handed me a big book. He asked me where I lived. He asked me if it was all right if he followed me home. And uh, I said yes to everything. And he followed me home. And he took the time to come into my house with no judgment um, and speak to my wife. She can't come here anymore. Every time I look at her, I want to cry. Um, <clears throat> he spoke to my wife and uh, he said, everything's going to be all right. Call me tomorrow. So I, I started my detox at home by myself. I woke up the next day. Of course, I didn't call him like I said I would. And uh, by the time I realized I hadn't called, it was about 10 o'clock at night. And uh, I thought, well, I don't want to call him too late, so I won't call now. Well, the next morning, about 8.30, I got a phone call from this man who I'd only met one time. And he said, this is verbatim, why the fuck did you not call me yesterday? And I said, wow, I, uh, um, I don't know. You know, um, it was 10 o'clock by the time I realized that I had missed the phone call. And he said, well, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, when he makes a commitment, keeps his word. And I remember that. Um, I was assigned a sponsor. His name was Paul. And the way that I met my sponsor was I was at a Little League baseball game. And I had told my wife, this guy's coming to meet me. You know, and I don't know what he looks like. I don't know what, what I'm supposed to be looking for. You know, And um, I was standing there watching the baseball game. And I turned and looked, and here came this guy with a dead Kennedy shirt on and a bunch of tattoos, and, and it, I just knew. And I said, are you Paul? And he goes, yeah, get in the car. So uh, we drove around, and we did the first three steps in a matter of minutes, one, two, and three. Um, I came in. I was blessed with the gift of desperation, like everybody says. Um, so it was a series of questions, and then he handed me the paperwork for my fourth step. I had that done in a matter of days. We did my fifth step when I called him. I called him and said I was done. Um, he, would, he handed me a highlighter and he said, I want you to read 
the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I want you to highlight everything that you can identify with, past, present, anything that you want, anything that you've felt. And I still to this day make people that I sponsor, I don't, I'm sorry, I suggest to people that I sponsor <laughs> um, that they do the same thing because it helped me retain the information. Um, I was unemployed at the time. I came into sobriety, and he introduced me to the Howe Place. He was working, so he couldn't make meetings with me, and he said, I want you to go into the Howe Place at the 8 a.m. meeting, and I want you to meet this old man named Chuck. And I said, okay. I walked through the door at about 7.45 one day, and there was two older men sitting in here, and I said, who's Chuck? And uh, this little skinny guy said, why, does he owe you money? <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I said, no, I, you know, my sponsor, I've got two days sober, and my sponsor told me I need to come find Chuck. So he said, I'm Chuck. And uh, he patted the chair next to him. <coughs> Chuck was the greatest man I've ever met. Because Chuck didn't talk to me about Alcoholics Anonymous. Chuck showed me what a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous does. Chuck loved this place. And Chuck loved me. I would come into these meetings and I was very argumentative. Um, <clears throat> Joanne probably doesn't realize this, but <clears throat> I think in my third meeting here, she was sharing about something that happened around the house and uh, <laughs> she had found a pill or something like that, you know, and was debating all day whether or not she was going to take this pill. <clears throat> and I can remember just being really pissed off. And I raised my hand. And, uh, you know, Chuck was the type of person that would let you stick your foot in your mouth. And I raised my hand and I said, jeez, if that's what fucking sobriety is all about, I don't want this shit, you know. So somebody, somebody give me some kind of hope. And, um, <coughs> sorry, Joanne. Um, and the miraculous thing that happened that day was that everybody in the room opened up and they let me know that um, my sobriety could be exactly what I wanted it to be. I just had to put I had to put forth the effort and I needed to work toward being a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. On the days that Chuck wasn't here because he was very sick, I would I would step outside and I wouldn't be outside five minutes after the meeting and he would pull up in his big Dodge pickup truck and the only things he would say to me is, Let's go and um I came in with a willingness that I wish I still had today sometimes because my only response was okay, you know. Um at the time, I had no other commitments in life, and um, Chuck loved me unconditionally, no matter what I said, no matter what I had done, he didn't care. And uh, I learned more from Chuck by watching that man than I did by listening to anybody that I've ever heard talk. Um, when, I wanted, when I had questions about my family, Chuck would throw me in the truck and he'd bring me to the house, and we would sit and we'd talk about football. 
I never understood exactly what he was doing for me, but what he was doing was he was showing me how he interacted with his family. I started talking about service work, and he said, i got some work you can do around the house. <laughs> and uh, he would pick me up, and I'd go plant trees in his yard. And I never understood what that meant. And uh, I look back on it now, and I realize that that's exactly what um, was taught to him, and that's exactly what I try and teach to the men that I care about in this program, is uh, my service work doesn't have to be at a homeless shelter. My service work doesn't have to be making coffee. And um, to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, all I have to do is uh, live by the principles that I've been taught, follow the steps, take the steps on a regular basis, share when I have something on my mind, be open and honest to a fault, and, um, and present myself to the next person who's coming in and allow them to know that there is a solution. I don't have to tell them anything. I don't have to, I don't have to identify with the way that they feel. All I have to do is come in here and live the things that I have been taught. And that's the ultimate message that I can give to somebody. See, it's all about example and it's all about life experience. We can come in here and we can talk about the 12 steps until we're blue in the face. It doesn't matter what I do when I'm in this room. It matters how I live when I walk out the door. You know, um, my relationships today with my family and with my friends are better than I ever dreamed. And um, that's a direct result of coming in here, being willing to listen to people uh, like Chuck, watch the examples that he set for me, and take the steps in a timely manner. I didn't come in here to mess around. Um, I had a guy tell me when I had two days sober that I needed to stand outside the Howe place and shake everybody's hand that walked through the door. I'm not that social, but I did it anyway. I stood out there and everybody that walked up, I shook their hand and I said, my name is Justice, I got two days sober and some guy told me I needed to do this. And that's, that's the attitude I brought into Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's the attitude that I fight to keep on a daily basis. Um, just one more quick story, and then I'll end it. <clears throat> Everyone is presented with God in a much different way than I am, and I told this story a couple of days ago, but it's one of my favorite stories. I had three days sober, two or three days sober. I was detoxing at the house by myself, and I felt like I was going to die. And I had heard the word prayer over and over and over again. And of course, I just wasn't down with that. And um, I got up and I went to the bathroom and I had that feeling in my stomach like if I could just throw up, I would be all right. And I couldn't throw up and I couldn't go to the bathroom and I said my first honest prayer. And I said, God, if you're there like they say you are, like they say you are, I want this shit out of me. And it was. Um, it was a very un unpleasant experience. Um, but when I got up from that situation... The obsession to use and drink had been lifted from me, and I walked away realizing that I couldn't deny what had just happened. I said an honest prayer, and it was answered right away. That's not the norm, but that's just my experience. That's the experience that I hold on to on a daily basis so that when I get down on my knees and I pray to God, I realize that He is listening and has always been listening. And that's the first major step that I could have made in this, this journey called sobriety. I don't do this thing perfectly, and I don't think anybody does. But if I can come in here and be an inspiration to someone who's just coming in, I will do that. If I can give somebody a ride to a meeting, I will do that. My wife will tell you I will neglect my family from time to time if somebody needs me at that point in their, in their life to give them the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. For that, I am responsible. <laughs> Thank you.